Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. Hey, my friend, welcome back to Conspiracy Part Two. <laughs> <laughs> this Evergreen series. So uh, we we did Part One, which is all about you know what is a conspiracy theory. Uh, scare quotes around that because there's a lot of things to unpack around that. And this is part two, which is talking about how conspiracies work. And uh, there'll be at least two more parts to this because we want to show in real life uh, how conspiracy has worked within recent history. And uh, th those are really exciting. Laying this groundwork. Thank you for bearing with us. And Jim, what have you got for us today? Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the mechanics of how what we're calling state conspiracies uh, actually work. Well, I think we should start with the field of economics. Works for me. All right. Sure. Uh, I view economics very simply as a study of human action. Uh, it's, it features incentives. So there's a we live in a world where certain things are, most things la are in lack. We don't have an, uh, an infinite supply of them. And one of those things that we don't have an infinite supply of is our time. Another thing that we don't have an infinite supply of is our money, right? So how what are the incentives that make us choose one thing over another? Well, it's the, and, it's the Federal Reserve, man, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it does play a role. It does play a role, yes. And and so I, I, a lot of people think of economics as money, and I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It really right, right. is looking at why humans make the choices that they do, and I believe it applies to every human being in all settings. I don't believe, for example, that when somebody goes to work in this in government that they suddenly suspend or they go to work at the church and they suddenly suspend their own personal incentives. They are responding to the field of incentives in front of them. And uh, when we talk about the government, there's been an economic field that's opened up over the last you know, 50, 60 years called public choice theory that says people in government are not necessarily angels. And I mean, they're human beings, just like the rest of us. And they're responding to a particular set of incentives. So what are those incentives? Um, yeah, okay. Okay, so in the Mechanics of States Conspiracies, we did an entire episode on bootleggers and Baptists. Sure, right. How people are motivated to uh, to get along so they can accomplish their own personal objectives or corporate objectives. Okay, I have to provide a summary here so people can follow along with what we're doing. But I want to be very clear. The reason we did it is because you can do an entire episode on bootleggers and Baptists. So we're not, you know, we're starting off already having to hit the ground running on something that if you haven't taken the time to study this or you don't understand what I'm saying, go back and watch that episode. If you say, well, what about this or what about that? You got to go back and watch the bootleggers and Baptists episode that we did. Bootleggers and Baptists is a colorful uh, way to, rem to understand the concept. What it means is that if there is alcohol prohibition, then the there are moralists, aka the Baptists, 
who have a cause for why they want there to be prohibition. But it benefits the bootleggers, and they're along for the ride in supporting it because people will have to come to them, and they won't have to compete in the open market. So the black market actors, the bootleggers, benefit. Now, bootleggers is a broad definition, broader than just prohibition. It means that there are people who are going to profit financially. They're going to gain power and money as a result of the prohibition. So there is, to my mind, this, we bring this, I want to say two things about this. This is what I believe is my unique contribution to this discussion of bootleggers and Baptists, if I may be so presumptuous. There are always far more Baptists, that is far more moralists in any given crusade than there are bootleggers. And the reason for that is, is that the bootleggers need the Baptists. They need the moralists. They need the people who will go out and make a cause of this because they're motivated by their conscience or their values or their personal beliefs. They need those people in order to get their policy through. There's not enough bootleggers. And that is simply because the pie cannot be split infinitely. So a small number of bootleggers leverages a large number of Baptists to get a particular policy through. Now, the importance of that concept is that it is a bad assumption on your part, on my part, on any analyst's part, to automatically assume that the people who are involved in a given uh, conspiracy, let's say they're lobbying in this particular case, are inherently evil people. In fact, as we discussed in that episode, some of the bootleggers may have Baptist tendencies, may actually believe that what they're supporting is actually good. There's a very famous saying that what's good for GM is good for America. That happened back in, I think, the 50s, right? The CEO of the company or president of the company said that. What's good for GM is good for America. And there's a lot of people who believe that what's good for them, what's good for the teachers union is good for America. What's good for, you know, whatever, for the military is good for America. So there's a lot of people who hold this view and a lot of the people who engage in backroom conspiracies believe that they are doing the right thing. They believe in the rightness of their cause. And they can almost always lay out justifications for it. But if you understand this fundamental dynamic of bootleggers and Baptists, if you understand that there's a small number of bootleggers and a large number of Baptists, you can also start to see that maybe the Baptists in some cases are being a bit conned. They don't realize that they're along for a ride. Yeah, yeah. There's a manipulation going on here. Okay, so you can start to undo a given conspiracy, a policy that you oppose, by trying to reach out to the Baptists who have no direct profit at stake. It's been said that it's hard to talk somebody out of something that they're paid to believe. So your bootlegger is not going to come along. There's a, a great movie called Thank You for Smoking. And I oh, see great movie. <clears throat> yeah. Great, not just this because of the movie so much, but more because of one particular scene that I favor where uh, a lobbyist is describing to his son, he's got him for visitation. They're out at the fair or, you know, amusement park and they're getting some ice cream and they get in a debate over ice cream. You can find this on YouTube. Uh, I Just this clip. I highly recommend watching it. But the point, the punchline of the whole thing is that he doesn't have to win the argument when he goes on a given radio or TV show with the person that he's being paid to debate. They're being paid to debate him too. 
the person's minds he wishes to change are the ones in the audience, the people who are observing. So the rules are, are not win the argument. The rules are win the people. And he's representing that. So this is part of what a bootlegger does. This is part of what a lobbyist does. This is part of what goes on as our normal routine operation of our democracy is that there are people who go out and argue for a given position because they're paid to do it. And if you're good at your job in those settings, and I've done, I don't know, I'm probably a couple thousand, 3,000 interviews by now. I don't know how many I've done. I don't know. I would, if I'm on a debate, I'm not arguing with the person on the other side. I've debated U.S. senators. I, I'm not debating them. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the audience. I'm making arguments in front of them that are persuasive to them. Because the Baptists are the part of the equation that matters. So every conspiracy that exists relies on having enough Baptists to support it. And it is a bad assumption that everyone is evil. I want to get those two things on the table right off the bat. Makes sense to me. Although if, if you've equated Baptists to moralists, somebody has yes. a, a, just a cause celeb, right? There's, there's, there's a, there's a, a reason that they feel mm -hmm. that their position is correct. Yes. And the, the difficulty, and I think what you're advocating here is that we, instead of assuming just because we're correct, that somebody else is, is, who is incorrect according to us is evil. No, don't do that. Don't do not equate someone who does not share your position with someone who is evil. That's a fallacy. Well, and I would also, so in the, the context of conspiracy theory now, I would say that the, you, a lot of times you will see this bootlegger and Baptist thing going on in, in a conspiracy. There's conspiracies all the time. Most lobbying efforts are conspiracies. Nearly all. Yeah, that makes sense. Some type to me. of conspiracy. Yeah. And it's it would be a mistake on your part to write off everyone who supports it as evil. They have justifications they can present that they believe profoundly they're doing the right thing. Sure. Yeah. And for my for my Christian friends, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, right? That's the presentation by which he makes himself. So there's always virtue attached to the claims that they're making. And if you don't recognize that virtue, if you can't acknowledge that virtue, then I think you're going to be less capable of dissembling or taking apart or even understanding. You are not going to understand the conspiracy that you're confronting. Right. Uh, even a legitimate one, say prohibition or you know any of the others that we can point to in history and say, well, this is what this is how it all worked. Right. And so conspiracy theories are all around us. And I believe that this, I, what I think has been missing is that people have failed to apply this particular heuristic tool to it. Now, we sure. went into detail about what this is, and we've gone actually a little longer than I wanted on this today. I just want to say, if you need to understand this better, and I advise everybody do, because I think it's a wonderful tool for analyzing a lot of the things that happen uh, in politics today. A lot of the actions that our government undertakes that are both open and banal, as Edward Snowden pointed out in the previous episode, and that are hidden and even criminal, which is some of what we'll get into in upcoming episodes. We'll give you some concretes of those. But in those situations, and I'm thinking in particular of one that we're going to talk about, I do believe that there were people engaged in that cause 
who knew that they were lying, but believed that they were doing so for a virtuous reason. Yes, yes. This is where it gets tricky, right? Exactly. And so you have to understand the virtuous reason because it gets at a real fear, and that fear was easily exploitable. Now, do I believe everyone involved was that way? No. But I do believe that there were people high up and involved that that is what they thought. And it's not a matter of me being able to say which is or which is not. We get in, we we start to get into dangerous territory. We start judging when we shouldn't judge, judge not when we yes. start getting into what people's motives are because we're not inside somebody's heart. We're not inside somebody's lives. We're not following even around them enough to know them personally, let alone to know what's actually inside them. So we can't necessarily say for sure. So the the right approach is to have a preference for grace, a default position for looking at the best possible case. And, and I believe that this bootleggers and Baptist tool and an understanding that bad assumption that every that, that everyone is evil is a bad assumption gets you off to the right kind of start if you want to understand how a conspiracy actually works. Let's talk about the actors inside a conspiracy. Uh, now, I mean, obviously we can talk about government officials and things like that, but uh, as you pointed out, conspiracy is the way that many things are done. Like people legitimately organize together to accomplish something. They conspire together. Yeah, so conspiracy is really simple. It's one or more person trying to get something that maybe they couldn't get through normal persuasion. Right, right. Normal persuasion being win-win, right? I, I didn't hold a gun to your head to get you to come here today. Yeah. Vice versa. I, you didn't hold a gun in my head to get me to prepare these notes. There's We we believed that we were going to gain advantage, both of us, by coming and being here today. And everybody that comes and listens to this show is doing something that they reasonably believe has something to do with increasing their own personal happiness. They want the information that's going to be put here. Okay? But if we cheated, if we lied in some way to get what we wanted, if we changed the incentive structure through manipulative means so that we got people here, if we actually use force to get people here, these would all be examples of the types of conspiracies that we want to unveil, uncover. If they're based on lies, if they're based on deception, if they're based on coercion, these things should not be. So what kind of conspirators does that make you and me? Uh, I do. I want people to have win-win, and I want them to leave wanting to extend more grace and, and to eliminate coercion. So that sounds like a pretty good conspiracy. Yeah, you got conspiracy. You could throw a uh, surprise birthday party, as I pointed out in the previous episode. Right. Is a conspiracy, right? Right. Okay. Okay. So, what is it that gives conspiracy cons co-conspirators like you and me <laughs> a bad rep? Well, well, you know. Okay. So, I want to let's be hyper precise about the question here. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm conspiracy theorists, right? And we talked about in the previous episode how that's a pejorative term. Yes. Why it's where it came from and why it's a pejorative term conspiracy theorists have a bad reputation that they've earned. And I'm going to suggest there's five reasons for that. Okay. Right. This is good. Tell me about, uh, first big claims require big evidence, the bigger, the better. And, and conviction requires evidence that exceeds the claim and routinely conspiracy theorists provide shoddy evidence, guilt by association. Um, in fact, one of the things that you'll see a lot in a lot of conspiracy theorizing is did you know that so and so knew so and so, and right. they were in this? They were in the same city on the same day. 
Right. And, or they were in the same state on the same day, or that one time they went, or that they went to school together at some point, or they went to the same school, but not at the same time. And, and this is enough to justify some connection, some deep plot in what it is that they're doing. Yep. Uh, another one we covered, we covered, a, we talked about uh, Murray Rothbard having a taxonomy where there was shallow conspiracies, which is all I have to do is say, well, I noticed that so-and-so profited off of it. You find a lot of that. I yep. am suggesting that big claims require big evidence. And the bigger the claim, the better the evidence has to be. And that if you want a conviction, if you want to say this person is guilty of something, your evidence actually needs to exceed the claim. We're talking about this is this gets forensic here. This gets legal. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, we borrow from that world because they had to take the time to figure out ethically what the proper tools are. Right. Yeah. So the fact that they've had to do this repeatedly, they've had to resolve conflict and differences and figure out where the truth is at. Uh, those tools are not I want to be clear. They're not fully followed. They're not practiced. They're not lived up to. But the standard is still there. And that gives us something to aspire to. And if we want to do this in a gracious way, we should aspire to be the best that we could be at this. The second thing, um, I have been at pains already in this episode to explain that the motives of the actors tend to be good. And almost every conspiracy theory that I come across automatically assumes that the people involved are evil and craven and depraved, sick, twisted, upside down, wrong thinking, stupid, dumb, et cetera, et cetera. Most of the time, it's not true. In fact, you'd make a real big mistake in underestimating the intelligence of the people that you disagree with. That's almost always a given. Even if their their motives are bad and they're evil, they're probably not stupid. Just because yeah. they don't agree with you does not become a definition of ignorant or dumb or stupid or any other pejorative you can attach. It has something to do with their knowledge. But it, it, they, in fact... It's possible they're smarter than you. It's possible they have more, they have more skills and abilities, and they have studied the question deeper than you have. This yeah, happens a lot. We've talked about this. Um, the the episode we did about the uh, fall of, ev of evangelism, yeah, and Ralph Reed and all of that. Uh, yeah, this conspiracy. I mean, this plan to operate on a particular group of people in a per in a specific way. Uh, was brilliant. Let's face it. Yes. Does it make it evil? Nah. No. No. He, in fact, Ralph Reed believes he's doing the right thing. Yeah. He really does. Even though yep. he's a bootlegger, he's he's one of these guys that crosses over. He's also a Baptist. Now we did tell of one's tale in his life where he was strictly the bootlegger, and he got caught, and he, he has to embarrass. He's got to pay for that. So we talked yep. about that in a previous episode. We can, if you want, put that down in the show notes, Bill. But. I, I you'll you'll commonly find this type of claim being called some kind of treason or sedition or insurrection yeah. or some other is it, 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 it there's an indication that somehow or other you are false to the cause. You're not right. a true American, right? Right. Like nobody can be, you know, nobody can come from a military family like me and believe that peace is the way and war is not. Yes, you're not loyal to the then you're not loyal to the I'm military, the people who died. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Three, I, I, I <laughs> life is full of coincidences, just absolutely full of them. Uh, and what, <laughs> so there is a, uh, the Simpsons 
have been predict- particularly good at putting on programming that has somehow or other come true historically later. Uh, there's other cartoons and TV shows, and this is something that's called predictive programming. And allegedly, in conspiracy theories, this is something that is done almost on a spiritual level. They have to warn us that they're going to do X to us or Y to us before they do it, right? Yeah. So before yeah. they fly a plane into a building, they have to make a movie about flying a plane into a building. And uh, they, it's always they, right? Yeah. They. And that, and and if we would have known, if, if we would have been sitting in the theater at the time and realized, like there's some way we could have realized that we were being told what was going to come our way. So some mid nineties film can have a plane flying into a, uh, into a building and that predicted nine 11. Yeah, of course okay. it did. All right. It's, it's not, it's not accurate. Okay. And there's a reverse one. I spent quite a bit of time on uh, a few, couple of months back while I was researching this. I've decided not to share all the details of it today because it's so highly detailed, but there is a conspiracy theory out there about what George Bush said to the children in the school classroom on the day of 9-11. And this thing has a lot of legs uh, in terms of like being circulated in, in con- the conspiracy world. And it is completely false. He, the teacher and him and the exchange that they had, they're, 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 the children were allegedly reading words, plane, go, building, or some crazy thing. I don't remember. It's been a couple of months since I did this. But and it was hard to actually nail down. And I still don't have one of the words. I spent hours trying to figure out, because it was that hard to find the real facts, why this wasn't true, why it wasn't said. But again, they're saying, oh, this was code. It was right there in front of school kids. And even the teacher was involved that day in helping to give us the code and let us let the people who were inside the conspiracy know that this was a that it was us. It was our government that was was plotting 9-11, except and and, and I'm not saying whether our government plotted 9-11 or not. What I'm specifically saying is this was not a piece of evidence. This was literally made up later. And so there's this belief that somehow this stuff is in programming and it's in the ether and they're communicating and they're doing it right in front of us if you're cued into the whole thing. And it's complete and utter nonsense. And it's and it deservedly gives conspiracy theorists a bad reputation. I'm with you on this one. I hear a lot of this kind that okay. the mythological predictive programming. I got to tell you another one that just causes me to clam up. And that is the pitfall of pattern recognition or oh my secret gosh. and embedded codes or <laughs> the worst, the worst. I read the numerology. Bible, code, you know, people I've, I've been in that. Yeah. yeah. So this, this shows up in like end times prophecy, uh, whether it is Bible prophecy or it is Nostradamus or something else, some, it, somehow or other, some vague thing can be numerologized or, you can use your zodiac, or there's some way to get this to this. Okay. Every morning the sun comes up. Can we agree on that? Yeah, it seems to. Tomorrow morning, I predict the sun will come up. Oh my gosh, Jim. I don't care what day you watch this, I predict it will come up. You can't possibly make that prediction with any kind of accuracy. <laughs> I know you're an evil person that you have something, you know heinous trying to <laughs> manipulate me to believe something that is clearly false. Okay. <laughs> now, 
every time that in, that they've made prediction, this is a constant thing. If you took the amount of times, like I grew up in a in a family that believed that the, there was going to be a rapture followed by a literal seven year tribulation led by a figure called the Antichrist, before which God, at the end of which God would come and judge the nations, uh, starting with Armageddon. This is what I was taught. Okay, now everybody wanted to know when, even though the Bible says specifically that no one knows the time. And it also said, don't add words to this prophecy. There was an industry, a cottage industry in Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind, et cetera, and lots of other small actors, thousands of them with programs, books, et cetera, trying to figure out the when and wherefore and how and, sh and doing what I call newspaper theology, pulling out and like reading and going, here it is. The end times is on its way. This is proof that it's coming, right? And they're wrong like constantly wrong. And so I had this experience when I was in junior high that my stepmother had purchased a book and it laid out a compelling case for why Anwar Sadat, who was the president of Egypt at the time, was going to be the Antichrist. And it started with the premise that he had made a peace treaty with Israel. So this was, you know, this was our man. He was going to be the charismatic leader of the world. And then he got shot. He was assassinated. And he didn't resurrect. He didn't come back. He didn't do any of the other stuff. He just simply went away. I no longer remember who the woman was that wrote the book. I know it was a female author. But I remember for about six months being very compelled by it, thinking, wow, this is, this is, they've really nailed this down. This is a very, wrote an entire book about this, Bill. People now, bought it. It was a bestseller. Forgive too, me. But. I was a kid, right? So, you know, at some point you got to outgrow this stuff. You see enough people gauging in numerology and pattern recognition, you should let go of it. Okay, and this is another reason that conspiracy theorists get a bad reputation. I posted the, my fifth thing. I posted something online uh, a while back, and I want to read just read it verbatim because I said yeah. exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah, this is good. I am concerned that too many people are imbibing unreal and simplistic conspiracy theories and leaving behind real and much bigger history. The theories they prefer are morality legends that prove that their enemies are as bad, if not worse, than they thought they were. You cannot counter these claims with facts. They become widespread because they are an emotionally satisfying confirmation narrative to a portion of the defeated group. Examples include Barack Obama isn't an American, Donald Trump is a Putin puppet, 2016's election was rigged by the Russians, 2020's election was rigged by Dominion voting systems. All of these are untrue. Now, we touched on a lot of the elements of that quote in the previous episode, but I'm back here trying to make the claim or the statement that too many thing, conspiracy theories are simply too pat. They're too simplistic. They are unreal, and they are the opposite of the big claims requires big evidence. They are a small claim that makes a very big claim. And when something is just so simple and pat and so neat and tidy, your alarm bells ought to go off. When something is so basically tribal, it only works for your side and it doesn't explain all the evidence. So I, I had conversations with people I like and care about after the 2020 election trying to tell me how Trump was going to come back again. He was going to, he was going to solve, 
he he was going to reveal something. This uh, attorney uh, whose name is eluding me right now, who who got sued by Dominion Voting Systems, has now turned state's evidence. Said she didn't mean anything that she was saying. It was obvious at the time, and I don't want to just pick on on the right. I, you, we got to pick on the left too, which is why we've included things like Donald Trump as a Putin puppet. The claims never matched the evidence. They only served one side. They are unreal. And the way you can tell is how simple they are. What's that postulate that says that the simple answer must be the correct one? The simplest answer? Uh, Occam's razor says that the, the, the most simplest, most direct approach is usually the best. But that that keeps that takes into mind that you actually have the truth. Right. Right. That works so in scientific inquiry. What you're doing, you're, you have two competing truth claims, both of which appear to be accurate. It says that what, and it's a tendency statement. It's it's a heuristic. It's not a law. Yes. That's where we that, make the mistake The here. simpler one. And and uh, uh, Einstein had a, a version of this too. So the, the more elegant explanation is the better one. So, and what he meant by elegance was simplicity. Like he yes. literally meant like, you know, E equals MC squared is a lot better than the entire chalkboard. He probably had to fill to get there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the better explanation, but it doesn't mean it's, er it's ergo. It's more true automatically. And I'm saying that these claims are just so they're, they're literally just so they're so just so that you're, you're, you ought to go, wait a minute. That's, that's too simple. That's, that, that's too obvious. Yeah. And on that basis, you ought to back up. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It means that you should stop and give it more attention and say, wait a minute, why, how could that be true? Like you should be more suspicious. Let me say it that way. You should be more suspicious of that claim. Yeah. Your I requirement mean, of an evidence standard should go up <laughs> inverse to its simplicity. It's a legitimate place to say, do your homework. Yes, do your homework. Right. So and, and I mean, my, really, do your homework. And, and this usually comes out to my opponents are so evil that they must, whatever. And it becomes a morality play. It proves just how evil you put, why, you know, I knew they were bad. But now that I know this, it turns out they're worse than I thought. Yeah. And when you see a conspiracy that patterned after that, whoa, hold the phone. It's yeah. probably baloney. The train has left the rails. Right. Right. So <laughs> the claims that revolve around these theories, if you were to step back just a little bit and take a look at them, would seem utterly asinine in so many ways. Yes. Why is it that we're so willing to believe the myth? I, I posited in the previous episode, and I want to say it here again, I believe that conspiracy theories, false conspiracy theories, not conspiracy facts, but conspiracy, morality legends. Morality exist, legends, yes. Exist for the benefit or, or as an explanation to powerless people to try to get, make sense of their world. That's, that's the on-balance explanation. Now, again, your mileage may vary. There may be different situations. Some people may be very sincere in what it is that they're claiming and stating and why they believe it. Okay. I understand. I have to tell you that even when you get into certain areas of conspiracy theory, there are certain things that are absolute garbage. And there are other things that turn out to have 
some serious merit, even if they're not completely correct. Right. And, right. and I, I don't think it's fair in any given situation to rule out all explanations that, that posit a conspiracy theory on some bias, because let's say the government has issued a report and now it's final. Right. Warren commission fact, or whatever. In fact, I, th there are, there are also myths on the other side. And the biggest one is what's called the appeal to authority. Okay, so help me understand this, because this is something that is so rampant right now. I saw it on the internet, so it's got to be right. Well, no, I'm actually trying to, to I want to posit the, the opposite is the problem. So, grace is going to require patience with the people with whom you disagree. And you have two choices in any given situation. You have a choice to say, I will not, this one gracious approach says, I'm busy. I've got a life. I've got things to do. I don't care enough right now. I have, I, I, I really got to go take care of my kid or I got to go to work or whatever it is you got to do with them. I got to get a nap, whatever it is you got to do right now. I got to mow the lawn that I don't have time to do it. Or you can say, I'm going to stay here as long as it takes. And I'm going to walk through this with you. And I'm going to show you the facts and I'm going to show you the truth. And at any point, you can revert back to stage one where you don't have the time. And those are those are acceptable grace responses to people, but insulting them because they don't believe what you believe, particularly if you have done the homework, is not gracious. So, uh, I mean, this is this is going to put a a contemporary mark in our otherwise evergreen episode, but uh, anti-Semitism. Is, or anti-Zionism, I suppose, is the best way of saying it. So there's this this debate going on right now, and one side is willing to paint the other very black over a reasonable um, argument. Yeah, I don't want to get too deeply into that specific yeah. thing today, but I, I agree you're, with you're, you. You're 100% right to suggest that there is an inability to listen to facts. Right, right. That's the point here. There's certain things get shut down, and... But my specific concern here has to do with this appeal to authority. And one of the insults that you'll commonly hear is, did you get your degree from a Google search? Right. Or, yeah, I, okay. So not agreeing with what has been put out by the establishment does have a track record. And we brought up an example that I've, I've spent a lot of time with over the course of my life and that we will investigate in one degree deeper in the future as we talk about conspiracies, our government's role in U.S. foreign policy. Like, what do we do? How do we engage with nations who engage in behaviors that our government or the leaders of our government at a given hour find questionable or do not like, do not approve? What is our response there? Our government's response, not ours, not yours and mine, our government's response. And the track record on this is really horrible. Yes. And when wars start, the very first casualty is usually the truth. In fact, it often gets shot before the war get, goes on. The truth goes out the door. And we'll cover a, a, a specific case example of that. We had two episodes that we've done now with Perry Willis at wartruth.org that lays out several historical examples of this. 
if you had believed what the establishment had told you to believe at the hours at which they were saying it, in the heat and emotion and passion of a lead up to a war, you would have believed the wrong thing. Questioning the that was the right thing to do. But most people didn't do that questioning until hindsight occurred. And because of that, people died, lots of them. So I feel like things should be questioned when they happen. I have to tell you, a lot of times I feel like Cassandra, right? The prophet that speaks and nobody listens. Yeah. Prophets themselves tend to get stoned because people want their lies at that hour because it, it vilifies the enemies that they want to have. It unites them in a mob, in a rage, and they're willing to stone or murder or behead or hang prophets. And, and, and not just uh, physically, but increasingly in our days, they want to take their jobs. They want to cancel them in some way. And this happens. There's, we have a hysteria going on every year. It, there's a new one every year, minimum, minimum of one, every single year where people are willing to destroy the reputations and lives of other people, maybe even, you know, would be enjoy to hear of their suicide or of their downfall because they, they, they were on the wrong side of the question. And I'm saying that this is wrong, particularly if you're based, if you're basing it on simply what the establishment told you, what the leaders said at the hour. And it's an insult, it's a stupid insult to say, did you get your degree on Google? So uh, can we talk for just a, just a brief second about, Amateur, the oh, amateur, absolutely. the amateur is it, it, it has the same amateur has the same root word as love, amor, yes. amore. That's amore, right? Yep. Amor means love. So the amateur is the lover of a specific subject. They are somebody who has done their homework. I happen to have a historian friend, and I call him a historian because he's done his homework on the founding uh, of the nation and how religious or not and what specific religion the founders were. And he has written tons about this as a blogger. And he's written books and he's done it. But you know what? He doesn't have a single credential to his name that's related to the field. But you could put him in any discussion or dialogue about this and you would learn a ton from him and he can cite sources and he knows who's said this or that. He's been engaged in the field because he loves the subject. He has become in love with that piece of knowledge. And he's credible, and I would argue maybe more credible than most experts because he isn't in any way on the take. He did this of his own volition on his own time and shared his results. And he didn't have to defend some school, some theory, whatever, to get to where he wanted in order to get tenure, get a, a, a promotion, a better job, get accepted into the right salons. He just did the work. So I actually believe very much in amateurs. Uh, homeschooling is premised on the fact that individual children get better attention from someone in love with them than they can from a teacher in a group of a large group who will only be with that student for one school year. This is not a slight or an insult of teachers, but it is a metaphysical fact. So if you say, well, where did you get your teaching degree? Turns out you don't need it. And by the way, there's been evidence to back up this claim. It is an amateur teacher at that moment. 
So I'm, I'm a big believer in the amateur and I'm a big believer in questioning the state because I think they tend to lie. And we've got repeated examples of it. And anybody that comes along and uh, you're going to cause my eyes to almost roll out of my head. If the best argument you can mount is, did you get your degree from a single Google search? That tells me you don't think that tells me you just believe anything you're told. Yeah. Yeah. So Bill, I, I, because of time, I would like to draw this episode to a close and I would like to have a part two to how conspiracies work. I, I, there, I think I, that's important. Okay. <clears throat> because we need to respect everybody's time. Uh, we've, we've covered an awful lot of important ground, but it, it turns out it, it required maybe a bit more explanation and analysis than I originally anticipated. So why don't we do a uh, part two on how conspiracies work? Works for me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this, by the way. Zap the state. Have a nice day. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, zeroaggressionproject.org is our sponsor. We should have gotten that in there.